Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 11 through chapter 9, verse 7. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a stair to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Some of you may know I spent part of tw summer 2016 in Lebanon. I taught English to Syrian refugees who lived in a camp just a few miles from the border. Personally, I didn't consider it to be all that dangerous, although it was certainly a lot more dangerous than a normal summer job. Syria was in crisis with a whole host of armies fighting for different reasons. And about a week before I left, there was an attack on the airport in Istanbul, Turkey, where I would be flying to for training. It killed 41 people and injured over 200 others. 
There was also a bombing on the Lebanon-Syrian border just north of where I'd be staying. And I ended up being in Turkey for that training just a few days before a faction of the Turkish army attempted a coup. You might remember that from the news. And while I was in Lebanon, I stayed across the street from a Hezbollah mosque. For those of you who don't know, Hezbollah is a legal political entity in Lebanon, but they're categorized as a terrorist organization by the Arab League, the European Union, the U.S., and others. All this probably explains why I was stopped by a Homeland Security agent and interviewed before I got on my plane coming back to the U.S., and was stopped again and flagged by Border Patrol when I arrived in the U.S. In Lebanon, I worked with a church near the refugee camps that had started an English school for the refugees and wanted to expand. Now, there's a significant Christian population in Lebanon, but the members of this church did sometimes fear for their lives. For various reasons, the locals didn't like the church reaching out to Syrians, and so sometimes they made threats or even threw stones. And the Syrians were intimidated as well. On our first day of class, one of our locations only had one-third of the students show up because their Lebanese neighbors threatened them. And others, Syrians especially, feared what their families would do if they converted to Christianity. For example, when the director of the camps converted, he was beaten by his family. The church was under a very real and very tangible threat. But they didn't let that fear overcome them. They continued to worship together and they continued to reach out to Syrian refugees. They trusted in God and remained faithful. In Isaiah 7, we see a very different response. We've seen how this passage ends with the famous words of Isaiah 9. But in order to get the full effect, to see how beautiful and hopeful this passage really is, we need to see it in its context. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to Isaiah 7 with me. I'm going to take us through several chapters and highlight some key parts so you'll probably find it helpful to follow along with me. So grab your phone or your physical Bible and open to Isaiah 7. That's where this passage starts. I'll give you a second to do that. Quick background. Isaiah prophesied to the tribe of Judah. And in this section of the book, they were terrified because they just heard that Syria had joined forces with the northern tribes of Israel and they were ready to wage war with Judah. And this was no small threat. Judah expected to be conquered if they didn't get help. Israel and Syria were at their door, poised to attack. I mean, imagine there was a foreign power surrounding Manhattan right now with ships in the Hudson River, the East River, planes circling overhead, and troops ready to deploy. That's pretty terrifying. Look at verse 2. It says, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What a picture. But in the very next verse, God tells Isaiah to go to King Ahaz and tell him, do not fear. Why? Well, for one, God had already promised King David, Ahaz's ancestor, that his royal line would continue forever if his sons walked with God. If Ahaz devoted himself to God, he could trust that God would not allow Judah to be conquered. And second, the Lord says explicitly to Ahaz in verse 7, It, that is the attack, shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. The attack isn't going to succeed. And then he says, and this is a pretty key verse for the section, verse 9, If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. 
There's a lot going on in Isaiah 7 through 9, but the key theme is trust. In whom or in what do you trust when you're afraid? If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And the Lord even tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. He says, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And Ahaz's answer is pretty clever. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounds pious. It sounds like his, he has so much faith that he doesn't need a sign. But God knows the hearts of men. He knew Ahaz didn't really trust in him. So he says he will give his own sign. Look at verse 14, famous verse. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to, or when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as has not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Judah was worried about Syria and Israel or Ephraim as they're referred to here. But God says a child will be born and before he's even old enough to know right from wrong, Israel and Syria will be wiped out by the king of Assyria. And that's exactly what happened. Within three years, the king of Assyria had plundered Syria and Israel, and within ten more years, the nation of Israel completely ceased to exist. What seemed like an overwhelming threat at the time was completely destroyed in just a few years. The the same thing happens to us today. I think of even when I moved to New York City just over a year ago. My wife, Mifeng, and I knew we wanted to move to Manhattan, but the how was pretty up in the air. Neither of us had lived here before, and we both needed a job. And in order for us to be able to afford to live here, the timing of those jobs had to line up. And there aren't more than a handful of churches in our denomination in Manhattan, so my job options were pretty limited. And when we planned a possible budget for having kids in the future in Manhattan, uh, we saw how expensive that would be. It was a bit overwhelming at times. And you know, it would have been a lot easier to just stay in Philadelphia. Mifeng already had a good job there, and when she graduated with her master's in nursing, it would have been much easier for her to transition to a new role at that hospital. And we could afford to raise kids much more comfortably in Philadelphia. We could have trusted in our own ability to make a life for ourselves in Philadelphia, at least for the time being. It was much harder to trust that God was leading us to Manhattan. How could we really know anyways? Maybe we should just stay in Philly. Maybe it was foolish to try to move to New York City right away. But now here we are. God provided for all the things that seemed so overwhelming at the time. Mifeng got a job at NYU and serving you all was better than I had even imagined. And I had to fundraise part of my salary, but God provided everything we needed. Kids aren't on the way yet, but we trust that when the day comes, God will provide. Sometimes those things which seem so overwhelming in the moment are gone before you know it. And in hindsight, we see we should have trusted God more. Now, that doesn't mean that, say, if you lose your job, you shouldn't plan and apply for new jobs. I mean, Mifeng and I still had to apply to jobs. We still had to plan a budget for the future. 
And it also doesn't mean that God will always work out things the way we want him to. But it means that as we apply for new jobs, we do so not with a sense of desperation, but with a deep trust that God will provide. Despite all these promises that God made to Judah, they still didn't trust him. Instead, they trusted in the king of Assyria. We read in 2 Kings 16 that when Ahaz was afraid of Israel and Syria, he begged the king of Assyria for help. He took the silver and gold from his house, from the house of the Lord, and sent them to the king of Assyria and said, quote, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Instead of putting himself, himself at the mercy of God, he puts himself at the mercy of the king of Assyria. How different from how the church in Lebanon responded. When they were threatened by their neighbors for reaching out to Syrian refugees, they could have just stopped. And it would have been pretty easy to rationalize too. You know, that, well, we're just, we're putting people's lives in danger here and, and we're hurting our ability to witness to our Lebanese neighbors. So we should just stop. They could have trusted in the safety their neighbors offered rather than trusting in God. But they didn't. They even decided to expand their ministry to Syrians. How do you respond when you're afraid? You know, for many of us, the past four months has been a very scary time. David Brooks published an article in the New York Times last month entitled, America is facing five epic crises all at once. There's COVID-19, there's newfound awareness of and desire to end racism and economic depression and more. And when we're afraid, the way we respond isn't always obvious or clear-cut in the moment. In March, it seemed perfectly reasonable for us to buy as much toilet paper as we could find. We can rationalize our fear. But in hindsight, we see how at times we refuse to trust a God and instead trusted in someone or something else, usually ourselves. The next time you feel fear welling up inside of you, pause and remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. Remind yourself that he promises to be with you. Remind yourselves that you can trust in him. Because Judah trusted in Assyria instead of in the Lord, God said he will bring judgment upon them. Turn to Isaiah 8, verse 5. Let me read it for us. The Lord spoke to me again. This is Isaiah talking. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, who was the king of Syria at the time, and the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against the waters of uh, against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over its, all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. The very thing that Judah trusted in will turn against them. 
Instead of trusting in God's promises to sustain them, they trusted in Assyria. But Assyria would do more than just destroy Israel and Syria. They would also nearly destroy Judah. Verse 8, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. The same thing happens today. We trust in the security of a big paycheck, but then the economy takes a hit or our job ends up consuming us. We trust our good looks, but then our skin one day begins to sag. We trust in our reputation or popularity, but the need for approval drives our insecurity. It's like the one ring in the Lord of the Rings. It ends up consuming the one who wears it. Those things we trust in other than God end up turning on us. Only God is big enough and good enough to merit our complete trust. And now we finally get to the part of the passage we read, verse 11. The people of Judah were living in fear of Israel and Syria, but God tells Isaiah, do not fear. Look at verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. It's interesting here that the solution to fearing worldly power is to fear God. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. The solution to the fear of man is to fear God more. To fear God means to revere him, to stand in awe of who he is. And fearing God is closely tied to the central theme of this passage, trust. We trust God when we have a deep respect for who he is. More than you revere the power of a virus, revere the power of God. More than you fear the rejection of your friends or family, revere God's acceptance of you in Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 actually quotes this verse. It says, even if, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And here's the part it quotes. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then listen to how 1 Peter applies that. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. When Syrians from the church I served in Lebanon converted to Christianity despite the threats from their family, people notice. When we live without fear, people ask why, and it gives us an opportunity to share with them the hope we have in Christ. And in verses 16 through 20, we see another crucial difference between Isaiah and his disciples and the rest of Judah. When Isaiah receives this inspired word from God, he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel 
from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Let me explain really quick why Isaiah's children were signs. His sons had some significant names. In chapter 7, God told Isaiah to take his son with him when he went to see King Ahaz. That son was named Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. And then he has another son in chapter 8, verse 4. There's some debate, but it seems likely to me that the son is the initial fulfillment of the Emmanuel sign in 714. The son that is born is the sign that God is with Judah. God told him to name, God told Isaiah to name him Maher Shalal Hasbaz, which means hasten the spoil, hurry the plunder. Because God said before the child grows up, the king of Assyria, Assyria would plunder Israel and Syria. Isaiah looks to the word of God and the signs he has given him for hope. But the rest of Judah, instead of fearing God, instead of trusting in his promises, when things start to go bad, they turn to mediums. Look at verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? God had already told them how things would turn out, but turn out, but instead of listening to him, they turned to superstition, hoping mediums could communicate with the dead and predict the future. It's a sad picture. But we can be guilty of the same thing. When we want wisdom for our relationships, we sometimes trust less in God's word and more in our friends or what the rest of society is doing. When you're wrestling with a decision, don't look first to what your heart tells you will make you happy. Look to God, what God's word commands us to do. God has spoken to us through his inspired word, and yet so often we go elsewhere for wisdom, for rest, or for happiness. And that exposes what it is we really trust in. Judah did not trust God. And in verses 21 through 22, we see where that leads. Take a look at verse 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look down to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They look upwards and curse God, and they look down to the earth and see only thick darkness. God says, because you didn't trust me but trusted in Assyria, Assyria will bring utter darkness. They will lay siege to Jerusalem. And let me give you a little bit of a picture of how brutal a siege could be. In 2 Kings 6, we read about an earlier siege that got so bad that, quote, a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. And no, donkey's head and dove's dung were not some kind of strange luxury in the ancient Near East. And yet half a liter of dove's dung costs what the average worker made in six months. 
Sadly, it's not even the worst of it. In the next verse, we read about a woman who boiled and ate her own son for food. The threat of a siege was terrifying. Imagine the level of fear, fearing that you and everyone you know will die a slow, horrible, painful death. Imagine the hunger of starvation. Imagine the hopelessness that comes from feeling like you're being slowly crushed and you've exhausted every option. All you can do is wait to die. That's the darkness we deserve when we place our trust in someone or something other than God. Utter dread and darkness. And it's in this context that we read this famous passage from Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. God is going to completely reverse their fate. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Instead of the population dwindling away, the nation will grow and rejoice. Instead of desolation, there will be the joy of harvest. Instead of being conquered, they will be glad as when a conqueror divides the spoil. Why? Because God has freed them from their oppressors. We don't have time to look at the references in verse 4, but it alludes to uh, the Exodus and also the Midianite oppression from Judges 6 through 8. Both are times when God saved his people without them lifting a finger. It showed that God saves by his power alone. But Isaiah 9 goes even further. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Not only will God save his people from oppression, one day he will end oppression himself. He will bring an end to war itself. The oppression of racism, the oppression of sexism, the oppression of lust and slavery, the oppression of greed, and the oppression of horrible, violent wars will one day come entirely to an end. And how will God accomplish this? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a juxtaposition. Worldly powers versus a child. My wife Mifik and I recently started watching a show about the Manhattan Project, which produced the first atomic bomb in 1945. At one point in the show, one of the leading scientists says about the atomic bomb, if it works, we won't just end this war, we'll end all wars. The thought was that the atomic bomb would be so horrible and devastating that it would dissuade countries of any future war. Similarly, World War I, before it was called the war to end all wars. The atomic bomb was indeed devastating, killing hundreds of thousands of people. But its devastating power did not bring an end to war. A humble child will bring the end of war. The deliverance of God's people and an eternal reign of peace. It'll be a child who is human, for unto us a child is born, and it will be a child who is divine. His name is Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This child is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And today, we can look back on that fulfillment. 700 years after Isaiah prophesied, an angel was sent to a young woman in Galilee. Remember, Isaiah 9-1 says that God will make Galilee glorious. And the angel told her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And when this child grew older, he went to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, also mentioned in Isaiah 9 verse 1, and began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew 4 says that is the fulfillment of this passage here in Isaiah. So here's the main point of Isaiah 7 through 9. Trusting in the world leads to darkness, but God shines in the darkness. Instead of trusting in God, Judah trusted in Assyria. But in the end, Assyria didn't help Judah. They turned on them and brought God's judgment of deep darkness. But God shines in the darkness. And one of the incredible things about this passage is that Isaiah 9 actually doesn't really say anything about what we do to experience that light. It just says God will have mercy. We deserve the utter dread of darkness, and yet God, out of sheer grace, shines in the darkness. 
And the brightest light is the light of his son, Jesus Christ, who came to us as a humble child to save us from our sin and bring an end to all oppression and death. Unlike us, he lived with perfect trust in the Father. And he endured the darkness we deserve that we might live in the light of his eternal kingdom. All we can do is let that light shine upon our face and rejoice in his goodness. And having experienced his light, we then respond with humble trust and shine that light in a world of darkness. Later on in Isaiah, we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The eternal reign of this righteous king promised in Isaiah has begun in the church. It's begun in the church in Lebanon, and it's begun right here in New York City. But as exiles, we still await its ultimate fulfillment. There are still wars. There are still horrible oppression. But like Isaiah did before, as we wait for the Lord and we hope in him, let us not fear the things of this passing world. Let us be a church that lives faithfully to God and says, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. God, thank you for shining your light in our darkness. Surely you are good and merciful, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Shine upon us now today, and may we be a light in this dark world as we hope and trust in you. Amen. Let's now give to God generously and sacrificially. This time of offering is a part of our worship as a church. Let's give to him and then let's sing together.